Okay, our passage today is Romans chapter 2. I do want to make it a habit that each time before we really dive in that we read the text together as a group. So we have a running start on what is being said. And to, to steal from what Pastor Jim said today, when we're done, we can just close the Bible and go home because it teaches itself. But let's read this passage together uh, in, in unison. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Will you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. For if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Oh, we can go home now. I don't need to t teach this. Of course I do. Uh, it's interesting to realize when you read a passage like that in its entirety, like we just did, 
you realize how immensely theological it is. But how foundational it is in our understanding of what is the gospel and what is salvation and what we are responsible for as those who are believers in that gospel. By the end of chapter 1, which we finished last week, we feel, feel very smug because we've read this litany about those people. Those people, the ones who have scoffed at God and God has given up on them and basically said, just have at it, destroy yourselves. You know, you're just going to wallow in your sin. In fact, if you look in chapter 1, verse 20 says, um, let's see, they are without excuse. Verse 21, for they knew God and did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re resembling mortal men. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God and God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all matter of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventor of evil, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Those bad people. Chapter 2, verse 1 is not talking about they. Paul very quickly turns the tables. Therefore, you have no excuse. This switch is profound. And it's something I believe that most readers of Romans miss because they stop at the end of chapter 1. And they're correct in that there is evil in the world. It's in all form or fashion. I alluded to it last week when I said, but you know, if you look at that litany of terrible things, uh, there, there, there's a couple in there I could be guilty of. I mean, I didn't obey my parents perfectly. I was a perfect child. Uh, I think I drove them to their knees in prayer often. Um, but we tend not to think that we're that bad. In fact, when we evaluate sin individually, we rank it. We rank sin, don't we? We have the really bad sinners, and we can name them, like Hitler, or Stalin, or Judas, or Charles Manson. You know, we can, we can name them. And then we have those that are the really good ones. You can say, well, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm a pretty good person. So we have indicated that Mother Teresa is the really good one. Don't we do that? And then we tend to put ourselves in the middle. We're somewhere in that we're working on it. We pay our taxes. We love our family. We go to church. We, we get along and we go along. And... We seem to think that there is a hierarchy of sin. <laughs> Paul nails us to the wall with his first sentence. You have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, oops, that's every one of us. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. No, I don't. 
I didn't slaughter the Jews in Auschwitz. Well, were you sinless? Or are you sinless? Well, most of the time. <laughs> and you want to go, no. I, I've alluded to it before, <clears throat> referred to it before, but when I was a college freshman, there was a fellow student who declared that he was now sinless. He declared he was sinless, and he very loudly proclaimed it wherever he went. Which we tried to explain was the sin of pride, but that was another conversation that he didn't want to listen to. But he felt like he was living the sinless life. And you're going, that's not possible. Let, let's go look at your Romans, my, my friend. Well, nah, nah, yeah, that's other people, not me. He was still doing that sophomore year when I got there, and he was the biggest jerk in the world. He was. <laughs> oh, that's on tape, sir. <laughs> that's now on tape, yes. He was actually one of my roommates my sophomore year. He was. So, he later got kicked out of school for marijuana possession, but that's another story. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so here we are passing judgment on another. <laughs> so aren't we being sinful here right now? <laughs> Matthew 7 verse 2, Jesus said, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. This is not comfortable. I'd really rather that these verses not be here because they tend to point backward at me. What we should realize, at least thematically, all of chapter 2 in Romans is about God's judgment. And if I were to create an outline of sorts, it's not original, so I'm not going to take credit for it. Um, but the first four verses is that God's judgment is inescapable. We can't escape it. These first four verses are very clear. Found, I found this little, uh, little anecdote. In a Connecticut city, 53 residents signed a petition to stop reckless driving in their neighborhood and authorized the police to set up stops and you know speed traps and all of that. Within three days, the police had caught five people. All five had signed the petition. <laughs> because it's the other people that are guilty, not me. And I wrote this down and I, I thought, this is interesting. Do we tolerate only as much evil in the world as we tolerate within ourselves? Think about that for a second. Do we only tolerate as much evil in the world as we tolerate within ourselves? which is why you see so many different levels of tolerance of evil. Francis Schaeffer has an interesting quote. He said, Mankind needs absolutes, universals, something by which to judge. If one has no basis on which to judge, then reality falls apart. Fantasy is inextinguishable or indistinguishable from reality, and there's no value for the human individual, and right and wrong have no meaning. <clears throat> there are two ways to get away from God's judgment. One is to say there is no absolute. But if one must be aware that if God does not judge on a hundred percent basis, he's just an old man in the sky. And worse, not only is man left in relativism, but God is bound by relativism. God must be the judge 
whose own character is the law of the, of the universe or we have no absolute. We do not need to be embarrassed when we speak of the individual coming to God to be judged in the historic sense of judgment. It is quite the other way. If this is not true, then we no longer have an absolute and we no longer have an answer for modern man. I mean, think of that for a second. We are in the throes of a very public uh, judicial decision of Roe versus Wade being declared no longer valid. That is, quote unquote, the law of the land has been changed by whom? Men and women. Men change the rules. There are other rules that were changed in the last few years that changed how men and, uh, men, and men and women and women can get married. They changed the rules. So suddenly, that's okay. So does that mean that we cannot judge that and say it's not right because it's the law? Well, if it's against God's law, so who, who determines this? This is really frustrating. I mean, we are told, don't judge. Don't be a judgy person. And you have to turn it around and go, but do you judge? Do you determine right and wrong? Oh, no, no. Let, let bygones be got bygones. I say, okay. Then hand an AK-47 to a young kid and take him into an elementary school. Is that okay? Of course not. By what standard? Well, by the law. Whose law? Well, it's common sense. Really? You have to bring this back. This is why it's so interesting for Jeff Watson as a philosopher speaking in these situations because philosophy and theology actually shape our behavior. And if we ignore it, we have nothing left. If there are no absolutes, then we end up with Judges 21-25. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Are we seeing that? So, if the standard is God's righteousness, or God's holiness, what can stand against that? Nothing. And that's the point. When God's purity, God's otherness, God's holiness, God's separateness cannot abide sin, then that sin must be judged. And someone say, well, that's up to God, it's not up to me. So are you telling me then that you have no right to moral discernment? Or are you just afraid to articulate it? Well, I don't think that's right. By what standard are you saying that it's not right? I shouldn't be injecting myself with heroin? Well, no, you're hurting yourself. Well, that's my right. That's my choice. You can't tell me what to do. Okay, so which house did you rob to get enough money to buy that heroin? Well, that's another matter entirely. You see, the twist, everything gets flipped upside down, and I'm on a bit of a rant here, not even in my notes. But <laughs> I'm just so frustrated when I see this Roe versus Wade thing, thank the Lord, it has been overturned. But that just means the battle moves to a different venue. The battle isn't over. Now, California and New York are going to make abortion absolutely legal. They will enshrine it in their state constitution. They have the power to do that. They have the votes. <clears throat> and they will make it possible right up to the moment of birth and beyond. They will do that. And then you're going to have corporations that come in and say, well, if Arizona makes it illegal, 
we'll pay you $4,000 to go to California. And I was mentioning it earlier, I said, so what you're gonna end up happening is somebody's gonna say, I need to get pregnant every month. So I can get a $4,000 paid vacation in California, Disneyland, every month, paid for by my employer. And if the employer says, well, you can't do that, then you're gonna say, then you're abrogating my rights. Okay, you wanna open that door? All right, I'm supposed to be talking about Romans. But aren't I talking about Romans? Yes. See, you see how easy we forget that the foundational underpinning of our very understanding of moral society is scripturally grounded. And we come to Romans and go, oh, it's just so heady, it's just, it's too hard. No, it's not. It's really not. Just read it. And then read it again. And if you don't get it the first time, maybe you'll get it the second time, maybe you'll get it the third time. Remember Chrysostom had the book of Romans read out loud to him twice a week in its entirety so he could just listen to its words. It was that important. Verse 2. <laughs> 20, 25 minutes on verse 1. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose you who judge those who practice such things and yet do it yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, another way to write that, sent, that, that verse, verse 3, is you think you're smarter than God? You think you found a secret way around it? Seriously? That's the way it should be translated. Because there are people who think they can, they've found a way around it. Or you have churches who call themselves universalists, I guess. They, more, they, they say they're religious but not Christian. They believe that everyone's going to be saved in the end. That God is not a God of judgment. He will not punish sinners. And they state it very clearly. They're very open about it. And you want to go, so are you telling me that when we go to heaven, we will be singing in the celestial choir with Stalin? And they will say yes. Because God is a God of love, not a God of judgment. And you want to say, because they will say, well, I can't believe in a God who would let babies die. But you're okay with abortion? Uh, well, okay, that's, sorry, that is what we were talking about. Or, or that we will let uh, tornadoes kill people and that everything seems to be random. You're missing the point. You're trying to define God according to your human understanding of what is right and wrong, what is moral and immoral, what is bigger or little. You are defining it by your understanding, and guess what? The person next to you is going to define it differently, and you're going to run into trouble. Or as in verse 4 it says, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. There is a massive swath of the Christian church that focuses on the God of kindness and the God of forbearance and the God of patience because that's acceptable. I can handle that. I like that God. And then the next part of the verse, not knowing that that's intended to lead you to repentance. That his mercy, when you know how sinful you are and what is truly deserved, that you are then overwhelmed by his mercy and his kindness, and therefore you will repent. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, 
A man may hate sin just as a murderer hates the gallows. But that does not prove repentance. If I hate sin because of the punishment, I've not repented of the sin. I merely regret that God is just, or, parentheses, or that I got caught. But if I see sin as an offense against Jesus Christ and loathe myself because I have wounded Jesus, then I have a true brokenness of heart. What if I can say that repentance is like the cry of a newborn babe which indicates the child is alive? That cry of God be merciful to me a sinner is a sure sign of life. To hate sin because it causes the brow of Christ to be girt with the thorny crown and the face of Christ to be dishonored with spittle and the hands of Christ to be pierced with a nail, that is repentance. Not because I'm afraid of hell, not because sin brings pain and penalty, because it made Jesus suffer. That is repentance. Isn't it interesting how we always miss that part of our understanding of the gospel? We look at it as repentance, well, I'm sorry for my sin, you know, and I feel bad because I know it's, I did wrong. Not of, I have offended Jesus himself. And he went on the cross and died to cover that sin. Oh Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verses 5 through 11 this judgment, the God's judgment, is impartial. An important concept. Because if it was if there was partiality, then there would be lack of fairness. Because we like to say, well, you know, I have this group and we have that group, and I like this group, but not that one. These people are, my, are, are going to be okay, and these are not. Well, verse 5, it's because of, because of your hard and un, impenitent heart that you are storing up treasure for yourself on the day of the Lord. Anybody notice I read that wrong? It's not, we're not storing up treasures. We're not putting little gold coins in the pocket of God so that when we get there, we get a pass. Because of our hard and impenitent heart, impenitent can also be translated as unrepentant. And by the way, the word hard also can mean stubborn, and it's the word sclerotis, arterior sclerosis, is the hardening of an arterial or an artery. That's the word. It's to have something that normally works, but it has become hardened. And that's the heart. And it's storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's judgment will be revealed. If you remember last week, there are two different words for wrath. There's the wrath. and the word thumos. And this is the one that Paul uses over and over and over again. This is a something that swells slowly but surely and grows before it bursts. Thumos is like a wildfire, a flash, uh, anger. So if anyone says that God is angry, well, Because he is kind, patient, and for, has forbearance. <clears throat> but at some point, that judgment must come. And it's a righteous judgment. And at that point, it will be revealed. 
Verse 5 has that word revealed. Chapter 1, verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And here, the righteous judgment of God is going to be revealed. The same idea, that same idea, at some point, it's going to show its full force. And in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his deeds. So I've got three verses in the, two verses in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament to read to you. First one is Psalm 62, verse 12. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24.12 That reads Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? And then Jesus in Matthew 16 He has some key things to say in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. That's what Paul is referring to here. When I was a young boy, I turned my life over to Jesus at the end of a revival sermon by R.G. Lee. R.G. Lee was one of the most famous itinerant Southern Baptist preachers. He preached all over the country, all over the world, and he was very famous for the same sermon that he gave everywhere. It's called Payday Someday. There's a collection of the 50 greatest sermons ever preached. That sermon is in there. I actually found a YouTube um, recording of it. I never knew it had been videotaped, which is pretty cool. It lasts an hour. So imagine a sermon lasting an hour that when you're done, I felt the fires of hell licking my heels as I ran down that aisle. Because I knew, I knew, and I still to this day remember getting home I was six years old, so imagine how young I am. And my mom and dad sitting me down in their bedroom. Just remember that wasn't the living room, wasn't the kitchen table, was in their bedroom. And they, because they didn't want my brothers to observe this conversation. It was just the two of them and me. And they asked me very pointed questions of my understanding of what I had committed to. They wanted to know, did I know what it meant, what sin was? Did I know what it meant to turn my life over to Jesus? And I had, I knew, I knew, there was no question. But that idea that God will render at the day of judgment according to their deeds was very clear. And this verse is right there. Now. Before you misunderstand this verse, there are some who point at this and go, see, Paul is teaching salvation by works. Doesn't it read that way? Well, it kind of does. And it kind of keeps going along the same lines down the breast of the passage. No, this is not salvation by works. Each person will be judged by their deeds, not saved by them. Make sure you understand the difference. You cannot work your way to salvation. But you will be judged by the deeds that you have done. Salvation wipes away your sin. 
but each person will be judged according to their deeds. Verse 7, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, they will have eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be two words, orge and thumos. Both words are right there in that sentence together. It's the only place in the New Testament where you find wrath and wrath in the sentence. In English, we translate it as wrath and fury. Hot, fire, flash, judgment, very final. But they're put together right there in verse 8. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. For the Jew first and the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Because God shows no partiality. I thought of it this way. I actually wrote this in my notes. On Judgment Day, you will not be compared to me. You will not be compared to Carl. You will not be compared to Lisa. No. You will be judged according to what you have done, not your neighbor. This isn't a contest. But I did this and this and this, and I did this and this and this, and I go, well, good for you. Do you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? I thought I did. Let's talk about that for a moment. This is where we get mixed up. This is why you read Galatians and you read James and you get confused. Where you have Galatians seeing all about grace and James is all about works. Well, you have to understand it's a coin with two sides to it. It's the same coin. It's called salvation. But there's two ways of looking at it. It's not different. It's just a different perspective. Verse 12, 16. Already oh, we're on time. Isn't that lovely? Um, it's not only inescapable, escapable, impartial, it is also universal. Verse 12. For some of those who have sinned without the law, Oh, it doesn't say that. It says all, everyone. For everyone who has sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So when Gentiles who don't have the law, talking about they've not heard God's law, they are lying to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day of judgment when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. So, Let's just step out of theology for a second and step, step into practicality. If you break a law and the policeman pulls you over, puts you in handcuffs, and you say, but I didn't know that was illegal, is that a defense? But wait, that's not fair. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's what Ignorance of the law is no excuse. So just recently, there was a fellow who set one of the fires in northern Arizona. Uh, he, he admitted to it. And he said, well, I didn't see the signs that said no campfires. So <laughs> I read that and I kind of went, well, you know, it's Arizona. It's kind of dry here. You're an idiot. Okay? That's no excuse. The say I didn't see the sign 
Well, you know what the government probably is going to do? They're going to have a sign every three feet in the forest. So you cannot claim that you didn't see the sign. They're going to paint it on the trees. They're going to write it in the ground. They're going to put billboards on the, side of the sides of the deer. They're, they're just going to be everywhere because then we can say, but I didn't see it. That's not an excuse. You know, granted, there are times where you're going along and I, this happened to me. Eh, true story. I got pulled over at the Philadelphia Turnpike. I was at a writer's conference. I was speeding. I had no idea. I literally had no idea. And the police told me, you know, comes up and said, do you realize you're speeding? I went, uh, I was going 65. And I handed him my license. Went, oh, you're from Arizona. In Arizona, that's legal. Here, it's 55. I went, and he kind of laughed. He goes, I hear this all the time. You out-of-staters need to pay attention. Because you set, you, and he said, you set your um, uh, speed, speed cruise control. I went, uh-huh. And he goes, yep, it's habit. Look at the signs next time. Yes, sir. And he goes, now, do you want a warning? I went, no, I was wrong. You need to do your job. And he said, okay, we'll write you up. Because I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. I didn't pay attention to the sign. Was that an excuse? No. So, you cannot claim ignorance of the law. So here comes the, the thing where people will say, but I, I'm just not quite sure I understand this. Ray Steadman put it this way. He was in a, a lecture hall and someone stood up and said, well, what about those that God condemns who never heard about Christ? His answer? Which one of you has lived up to your own ideals? God won't judge you on the basis of something you haven't heard, but on the basis of what you already know. Have you ever done anything deliberately wrong? And which of you can say that you measure up to your own standard of what is right and wrong? And he said, the room was dead silent. You can talk to the uh, Stone Age tribe in New Guinea who's just been discovered and they have a moral code that when the missionary was there and talking to them, they started going down the, the lit, their litany, their law, and it was the Ten Commandments. And they never had heard of it before. It was written on their hearts. I found this illustration from the story of Pinocchio, the wooden puppet whose nose would grow when he told a lie, and his friend Jiminy Cricket said, let your conscience be your guide. And that changed everything. But I look at that and went, do you realize that means God in this story wrote truth on a wooden heart? It's there inside every person of what is right, what is wrong. We, we end up trying to define the, the tarnation out of it. But it's a challenge. And then this text turns to what seems to be only to the Jews. And yes, technically, Paul is writing to the Jewish people. Verse 17. You call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed in the law. And if you're sure that you yourself as a guide to the blind and the light in the darkness, which is a quote from Isaiah 49, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and the embodiment of truth, knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? When you say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you abhor idols? Do you rob temples? You boast in the law, but are dishonoring God by breaking the law. 
And the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's taking his people to task, saying, you have the law. You are really without excuse. And I translate that to say to Christians who have accepted Christ, whether you've grown up in the church or not, you've read the scriptures, you know, you know what's right. The scripture's really clear. I actually wrote in my notes here earlier, said um, sometime in the month of June, there's still a few days left, read the Sermon on the Mount in one sitting and try to feel good about yourself. You can't. It looks like an impossible thing to achieve. But that's the point. It's not up to you. It's up to you to surrender your will and surrender yourself to Christ to bring you to that understanding of the true gospel. Donald, J., uh, Donald Barnhouse was writing about the, uh, in his commentary on Romans, he said, here's the challenge. As someone who's been a Christian for a bazillion years, he didn't use the word bazillion, I am. Um, <clears throat> you start thinking, you know, I don't really need the gospel anymore. I already understand it. He says, and that's the first sign of the insidiousness of the devil inside your head. Because if you're not constantly preaching to yourself about the need for His grace and His salvation, you will then start relying on yourself. And then trouble begins. So isn't it interesting you hear preachers will say, yeah, I was studying this and I realized I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> yeah. It's true. When you study passages like this, we need to realize that even though it says to you Jews, mm, it's there for a reason for us. The balance of the passage gets very wound up inside the concept of uh, uh, circumcision and what it means and its understanding the bottom line rather than trying to unravel it all is Paul is trying to say circumcision as a mark is not a sign of salvation it is an outward sign of the covenant and a Gentile who is uncircumcised can be just as saved as a Jew who is. Because it's a circumcision of the heart, not of the physical body. That goes all the way back to Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, where it talks about circumcision of the heart. And so it's not saying anything truly um, groundbreaking, but who knows, to the audience in Rome, to whom he had never met, who has a strong Jewish leadership, some had been kicked out by Emperor Claudius and maybe they've come back, and there's been some tension between the Jews and the Gentiles in this church, and he's speaking to them and saying, guess what, under Christ you're all equal. It's impartial, it's universal, it's inescapable. And this whole thing about circumcision, you know what? It's not a requirement. In other words, you don't have to be baptized to be a Christian. It would be nice to do that as a public sign of your commitment to Christ, but the water does not save you, as some churches teach. Um, I actually came across a product, and I've mentioned this before, called the Five Spiritual Laws. So they took the four spiritual laws of Campus Crusade and added baptism. Because that's what their church taught. Like, uh, no, that's not what that means. It's a sign of the covenant, not a act or a work 
that assures you as your ticket to heaven. Years ago, there was a book that had a great title, Who Are You When No One Is Looking? Unfortunately, that man had a very public fall in his ministry, um, but the title is still a good one. And I came across this uh, anecdote about a driver who put a note under the windshield wiper of a parked car. The note read, I have just smashed into your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me and they think I'm writing down my name and address. I'm not. <laughs> and walked away. So he was acting like a good citizen. He was acting like he was doing the right thing. But in actuality, he was doing something very wrong. That type of thing, when we explore our own lives, what, they, what do they say? If you point a finger, you have at least three of them pointing back at you. You always have to have that in, in, in balance, in mind. At the same time, when there is wrong, someone has to stand up and say, that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. And I may not be perfect, but I certainly know evil when I see it. And what you're talking about is absolutely evil. And it's wrong, it's immoral, it is not something that should be emulated or promoted. We have to be part of that message. So that's my, uh, my exposition of chapter two. Let's uh, go to prayer. Lord, thank you for the time to Look at your judgment. Not an easy topic. Not a fun topic. Especially when it turns the spotlight on yourself, on me, on each of us individually. But I think that's your point here. It's so easy for us to point at the other person and the other people and say, look how bad they are. And forget that we need to apply the same rigorous threshold of the gospel of sin and repentance on ourselves so that we may be wonderful examples in the kingdom of God and move his kingdom forward and not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.